Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto finance to global macro. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. This week, I had the incredible opportunity to speak with Joseph DeLong, the CTO of SushiSwap. If you've been following the Sushi project, you'll know that there's been a highly anticipated product announcement. And Joe finally made the big reveal on July 20th at the Ethereum Community Conference in Paris. We talked about Trident, Sushi's next generation automated market maker, and cover other platform products such as Miso, the token launchpad, Kashi, the lending and margin trading tool built on BentoBox, and Shoyu, Sushi's upcoming NFT platform. We also explore other topics such as the drama and discussions around Sushi's recent strategic raise, Uniswap's token delisting, and regulatory pressure in DeFi. Lots of interesting insights in this conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, Joe, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's so great to have you on the pod with me today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. I know you were pretty busy uh, traveling. You were at ETHCC where you did a presentation announcing sort of the next generation automated market maker called Trident, which we'll talk about today. But would love for you to just talk about your experience, right? Was this the first conference that you've been to post COVID? And how was it meeting people? Yeah, definitely my first. No, no, actually, I went to Bitcoin Miami, but I didn't really go to the conference. I went to see some friends and that was pretty exciting as well. It was nice because right before lockdown, this is the last conference that I went to in 2020. And it was nice to just be back in Paris. Paris is a lovely city and great to be around people, especially in the Ethereum community. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Joe, I would love for you to talk about your story. I read one of your tweets kind of when I was discovering who the sushi team was, right? I knew about Maki, but you're a new face for me. And you tweeted something that that said, I want to tell my story so there is clarity around why I hate banks and am long on personal freedom movements. And I was really moved reading that whole thread. Um, And I thought it was a great gateway to understand your mindset as, you know, a a crypto participant, crypto enthusiast, but now, of course, also the CTO of the Sushi Project. So we'd love for you to share your story. Yeah, I think um, one writing that was um, very cathartic for me, I, I got to kind of detail some of my life story and maybe in depth that I, I remember I, my, my lifting partner, like the person that I like, uh, lift weights with that uh, I, I, he follows me on Twitter and, and I, I realized when I wrote it that I hadn't told anybody really like my crazy, uh, story it was pretty humble beginnings in where I'm really young and kind of like thrust out into the world. We have this super weird system in America where it's kind of like you're 18 and you're out. We, you know, when you turn 18, you're kind of out on your own. And I had kind of like a very long and difficult adjustment period where I'm in relatively extreme poverty. And then I uh, 
kind of have a hard time with banks where they're overdrafting my account all the time. And this is an ongoing thing where banks are abusing, you know, poor people um, through not entirely moral accounting practices. And then I, I joined the military where it's like be, being in the military, while I do have um, pride for the work that I did there, you feel a sense of, um, a sense of like you're just not many many people who go through the military and this doesn't isn't every single person we don't necessarily feel the missions that we're put towards um in a political sense there i mean like it, it varies from person to person but i would say generally we don't believe in the reasons that we're going to these mostly the middle east um, and, and the objectives and you feel you feel honor for your time but a, a sense of loss in that what you're fighting for in many cases was meaningless um and yeah this is I'm, I'm joining like on the heels of afghanistan iraq wars is starting i think it's not controversial to say that those were exercises in like frivolity especially Iraq. Um, now, pretty much Afghanistan, as you've seen the Taliban just retake the country. Uh, you know, people dying for uh, no reason. And um, yeah. yeah, sorry. Um, no, yeah. Um, you know, young men sacrificing their lives. Spill, you know your your country men spilling their blood for essentially nothing. Um, yeah, uh, so I kind of mm, mm, fuck. <laughs> I teared up reading your thread, you know, and, and I'm sure yeah. talking through it and kind of needing to go back and kind of dig through your memories. Like, of course, don't don't mean to be doing that or, or prying about your no, backstory, of course. But I think it's just it's so important to frame the way that you see crypto because everyone comes in through a different lens, I think. Right. Some people can be purely uh, from a technologist's point of view. They like the technology and it's just something revolutionary. Others like yourself, it's it's more about this personal freedom, this feeling like you have ownership over your future and the decisions that you're making. And, and that's something that crypto is enabling more people, you know, not nearly enough people, but more people, uh, surely. And so, yeah, yeah that's why I, I, I wanted to just like, understand like from that experience right which was you know clearly clearly very painful at what point after you returned from from war did you feel like you know what i want things to change for myself i want to be doing something different kind of not beholden to to the government yeah totally so during this time i'm like getting and i think it's really easy to dismiss like libertarian movements especially because there is 
libertarian movements and, and personal liberty movements, I, I think there there are many people who operate under the guise of being um, uh, libertarians with like a little L, um, but really use it as like a concealment mechanism for their actual political beliefs, which are just you know conserve like like Republican beliefs underlying. Um, but they're scared to say that they're Republican, and so they'll say, I'm a libertarian. And um, uh, it's easy to dismiss that because many of those people are pretty distasteful. Um, but I think, like, personal liberty movements are really important, and I think it's not necessarily a right-wing movement. I think it's a, a, a right- and left-wing movement. I don't think it should be controversial to um, want your personal liberty and freedom to... Uh, freedom and dominion over your person and so I, I got involved in that Ron Paul was a, a huge um, uh, kind of like origin of that um, in 07 he's like running for the Republican nomination he's kinda, he has a huge following I'm into it he's talking about some monetary policies ending the Fed and from that, I, like, kind of started to get in, involved with it. Like, think about, like, this idea of, like, ending the Fed and and uh, auditing the Fed or going back to... This is all before the housing crash. It's all, like, leading up to the housing crash. And then um, the housing crash happens. I'm still in the military. And I, and I get out, like, kind of, like, with absolutely no... But making war is, like, this, this thing that, like... For the most part, leaves you with no skills, right? Like, what was the civilian equivalent of like an electronic warfare technician, right? Like, radar jamming. What, what am I going to do in the, in the regular world? Am I going to take X-rays or something from the people? So, um, I, I I get out and kind of am right back where I was. You you know, unemployed or unemployed, underemployed, stupid with no skills, and so um, I start school. For math and computer science, which like um, I I said yesterday, to someone is like was not my strong suit. It's just something that I knew um, would kind of like lead the way out of like poverty, and um, I just like kind of threw my hat over the wall and committed to doing it under the um, risk of embarrassment as the outcome. Right? See, when you do a military, they kind of pay for your college. It's one of the like odd benefits that come out of it. And so that was great, you know, got, got kind of the school compensated. And so I did math and computer science. So then I wound up working for a bank, which is like perfect irony. Um, and like while I was at school, I started like to learn about Bitcoin, starting to like kind of come up and mining on the school's like library computers. And you could still CPU mine. And that was a crazy time. And, uh, and then I'm working at this bank, and they're really into blockchain, which is great. You know, this is like yeah. What year was this? It was like 2015, I think. Um, 2014, because I remember I was really into Doge, and Doge was like it's definitely over by the end of like 2014, right? Like it's <laughs> the whole purely a um, meme, no speculative yeah. uh, promise there. Yeah. Totally. They had this, but they had this like crazy active community. Man, there was just this one moment in time that I look back, and it's 
it's so funny that you can't there's something special about communities um and that they exist kind of for a moment in time and dogecoin there's a moment in time from 2014 like february of 2014 to like i don't know may or june of, of 2014 that it was the best place on the internet in terms of um, kind and empathetic people and um, uh, I, I don't know just an, an interesting place to be on the internet uh, this is like the dogecoin subreddit now it's just people talking about like price no high like maybe price go higher and <laughs> that's all they ever talked about but at, at one point it felt like a real community they were that everything they did was around charity like we there's a, like a lot of tokens now that have this charity narrative i mean dogecoin forged that path they did um they sponsored the jamaican bobsled team they sponsored water efforts in africa they sponsored a well i guess sponsoring a nascar isn't really charity but they but it was like a, a driver who was an underdog you know and um yeah so yeah i'm, I'm like involved in in that i'm like working at the bank I even many times try to convince, you know, you guys are, need to get into Dogecoin, you know, like this is, this would be really cool. Um, but we never, uh, you know, we never really penetrated that way at the bank, but we were able to get Coinbase in her application. Um, we got the bank to invest in Coinbase in the Series C, like it's very, it's lots of good stuff. That, Probably thinking that came you out of, today. <laughs> What's that? So they're probably like, thanking was, you today. <laughs> I, I wasn't super critical, but we had just like this, like another like group of people that just like happened to be at the bank that were very much into crypto. For whatever reason, in the bank of all things, like an ultra conservative bank was into it. So I I don't know what the bank was thinking, but you know, good good decisions then. But you know, in hindsight, it seemed like very risk on decisions. Um, and so uh, I start like Ethereum comes out people tell me about it I dismiss it um, uh, you know uh, like uh, okay you know like this time at this time every five seconds a new token is coming out it's like world coin or peer coin or 21 or 42 or master coin or something just there's all like it's just you're getting rapidly hit with it and so when somebody was like ethereum i was like no nah, i'm good <sighs> thanks i think i think dogecoin's the future or you know <laughs> so uh, at some point early i i'm just not grasping why it's so important and eventually i, I do and we build some stuff for the bank um we've built like settlement platforms for insurance cost recovery um, and then uh, me and some of my close friends we went to eat denver to the first eat denver and we built a prototype around web3 uh, it was really a lib p2p um, in your browser, you could kind of make a uh, a interconnection through a lib P2P pub subroom. Um, and we were building, we were trying to build something that did like big science. 
similar to Boink or um, a SETI at home. It was one of these platforms that was used for processing large data sets. And so you would just go to the browser and it would like connect you to all your peers. And um, then you would start like working on the data set and it, it would just get shared in the room and that would get like put together. We started with the Colatz conjecture like solver and then I I went to South by Southwest because I heard that they were doing blockchain stuff. This is really just a kind of falling out of the plane all the time <laughs> in terms of just like what I'm doing. It's not with any kind of like direct purpose and just trying to do something that, that makes me excited or happy and um, I, I see Joe Lubin and I kind of corner him and luckily he didn't call his security team to to get me because he was like really sweet and um, brought me into the space. He didn't really necessarily like what we had built, um, but he knew that it was like, that it meant the team was talented. And so he asked us, there's like a bit more complication to it, but you know, essentially what wound up happening is we were building the E2 client for um, for uh, consensus, which is um, uh, which wound up being called Teku, um, and uh, we work on that, get through phase zero, which is this beacon chain launch, launch it, and then um, I uh, I'm kind of then then I'm um, working on at Dapper Labs for a bit in between. Just love that team, love that uh, platform, love Flow. And um, then Maki uh, asked me if I wanted to come work at Sushi. And I definitely did. I mean, having the capabilities of Sushi to, yeah, having, having access to great talent and essentially unlimited resources meant that we could build just like amazing stuff. And that was um, too good an opportunity to pass up, I think. So yeah, I definitely did that. And you know, the rest is history. We built, now we built like Miso, Kashi, Bento, Trident's coming. We have, we, we've retooled the front end. We're on like 14 different networks. We have so much packed before the end of Q4 that I'm just so excited about our roadmap and I think I, I think it's going to be clear by the end of the year our our technical direction and why that's important I, yeah yeah I mean it seems like you've you've finally found purpose being a part of the sushi community that is growing sort of by the day, right? And uh, we'll, we'll kind of get to the dynamics between the community and the VCs and, and firms with regards to this Phantom Troop Sushi Private Self fundraising in just a bit. But I want to continue where you left off, which was 
talking about the sushi ecosystem, how sushi is building really this comprehensive DeFi ecosystem with a number of products across AMM. Uh, there's a new NFT platform uh, coming out probably in the next coming months called Show You, right? Kashi, the leverage and margin uh, trading platform, and Miso, the token launchpad. So a whole bento box, although I'm not using it in the technical term as Sushi uses it, but, you know, of offerings, right? And um, on one of the forums that the Sushi community is on, I remember Omakase writing that Sushi wants to be the leading marketplace uh, for tokens through empowerment, where users can swap, lend, borrow, you know, leverage, incentivize, hedge their coins all in one place. And so it seems like when it comes to product development, there is this emphasis on both vertical integration as well as this horizontal expansion as well of products. The Sushi Swap team obviously had the 720 announcement, which you revealed at ETHCC. Talk to us about the big reveal, right? The details around Trident, uh, which is uh, Sushi's next generation AMM. Talk to us a bit about that. Yeah, sure. So we really started on May 12th. That gives you an idea of our timelines for these things. Um, in my view, expectation um, uh, of, of release will be sometime in between the next 20 to 50 days. So we have really short timelines. Um, we have great engineering talent, and it really just started on in May, middle of May. Um, uh, so Trident, I think, shows um, progression. We've we've relied on this legacy AMM built by our contemporary, and um, we wanted to. Um, build our own thing, as well as enhance the capabilities. I think the design um, plat or the, the platforms that, that other AMMs are releasing are these like long waterfall processes. And we really designed Trident as a factory in that sense. And we wanted to have like short term upgradability. So there's not this long kind of Oh, we've come up with a new, new way to, to build an AMM. And so now we're going to deploy a new router. We have all new contracts. No, so what we did was we built kind of this interface that the they conform to, that we can build new pools and deploy them when necessary. That's kind of the, I'd say the main uh, design goal. And that's, built on this idea that we wanted to also build our new AMM on top of BentoBox. And BentoBox is really important, I think, to the whole design, as it is this vault that allows tokens to come in, but it has an application layer that makes those balances available virtually, and the actual underlying tokens get taken and put into yield strategies. So if I'm an LP, for this AMM, a liquidity provider for this automated market maker, Trident. As I deposit my tokens for LPs, the actual tokens underlying get taken and they're gonna get invested in other strategies. And this is very similar. If you think, um, an analogy that I like to make is to a bank, right? You go, you go on your bank's website and they have they have your balance, right? This is Joe's balance. 
But the bank doesn't really have a cardboard box with that with shows money in it. They have uh, some money. They have some of it invested. They have some of it that they've lent out. Um, but when you go to your, the bank to get your money, it's there. And this is very similar in, in design. The difference here is it's non-custodial and um, uh, we can kind of like claw back that like those funds when it's necessary. Yeah, so that's that's the real main feature. It's going to give us a 2x capital efficiency advantage over our nearest competitor. We also built four pools, three new pool types. We kept our con our like traditional pools, constant product, 50/50, like our constant product 50/50 pools, but we've got a 15% gas efficiency gain and a like 2x like capital efficiency gain. We've added concentrated liquidity. We think that that's going to give us a lot of uh, capital efficiency, and that's built on top of bento box, weighted pools, and this hybrid pool. And our hybrid pools are permissionless. You can build up to from two to thirty-two of like-kind assets. So this is like USDC to USDT or REN BTC to WBTC are the examples that I like to use. So these are kind of like swaps in between two two like-kind assets. Um, and I think that's going to give us a huge capital efficiency gain when you're swapping from in between like kind assets. They're going to get to act very, very much like the same asset. We also built a new routing engine called Tynes. Tynes allows us. This one's always hard to explain. <laughs> like I had like a diagram when I when I did the presentation, but really it works like this: is like multi hops we do now, which is I want to go from token A to token C. There's no token AC pool, so I have to go token A to token B in the AB pool, and then token B to to C in the BC pool. Multi-hop, right? Everybody does it. Every router does it. Then there's multi-route, where I can start with two, because now we have multiple pool types. Before, we only had kind of one individual of, of each uh, uh, two tokens, and so... Now we can start from different routes. One that I might say is like a concentrated liquidity pool of USDC to USDT. And then we'll have a hybrid pool of USDC to USDT. And when we hit price impacts on either of those pools, we balance the trade in between those two, taking into consideration swap fees, gas, the map of, of everything, and it just will balance those two trades. And Tyne's able to do those kind of like nested, so I can do a multi-route and a multi-hop simultaneously and get really great prices out of that. And so that's only enabled because of this multi-pool design, right? Because you're effectively pulling from a much, much larger pool, so you're, you have better liquidity that you can be sourcing from for better execution. Is, is that the overarching idea with that? Yeah, there, there, there are tokens that succeed at certain things. Um, uh, there, are cer there are certain tokens that work really well in one strategy and not well in another, like AMM pool. For instance, um, like like-kind assets behave really well in these stable swap pools. I think the concentrated liquidity positions for so this this one's a, a more complicated example because for like-kind assets, the the common belief is that concentrated liquidity positions are better for these. But if you consider the under the amount of underlying capital 
that's required to build a, let's say a 32 asset pool is like 32 factorial to get you somewhere near the combination. And that's just a lot of liquidity that you need to add for these individuals. And then you'll have to route through that and swap fees, price impacts to go from, you know, maybe A to B to C to D. I, I think that you'll find that stable swap pools are much more capital efficient in the sense that we need to use less underlying capital might not guarantee as good a price. Yeah. So one question I've had from one of our listeners actually is how will the like kind pools compete with curve, right? Which is where a lot of the stablecoin is stablecoin swaps are happening right now. Yeah. Um, we don't necessarily want to compete with curve. We need this capability within our router and we'll have like really good capital efficiency in that sense. One thing to keep in mind is that it's, this is permissionless and so you can build your own pools. If you want to build um, a pool that's SUSD, USDT, USDC, and FEI, you can, right? It doesn't have to be a meta pool if you just build, build a pool with those assets in it. If you want to build a pool that's RenBTC, WBTC, IBTC, TBTC, you can do it or you can have less or you can have more. That aspect is, is really important in my view, right? There may be assets that it will really succeed at stable swaps that we're not even identifying yet. They're like like-kind assets. Like, how about like sushi to ex-sushi? We, we have this whole like wrapping mechanism, but we need to convert to ex-sushi on these other chains. And when we convert from sushi to ex-sushi, we hit price impacts. We're assuming that these two assets are going to remain relatively stable in terms of their prices against one another. These are the capabilities that we need within our own AMM. And Sushi is a multi-chain project, right? So taking that example, swapping Sushi to ex-Sushi, are you finding it you know, more competitive to swap on, say, Polygon versus Ethereum for that particular pair? I mean, it's crazy cheaper on gas and they have really good tvl on polygon i think it's no competition maybe we see that with l2s on ethereum but i'll believe it when i see it i'm just waiting on arbitrum we want to deploy or well we're deployed but we want to um you know deploy trident there as well so so i guess to sum up trident who would you say it's catered towards right now? Because a lot of our listeners probably have a lot of optionality. Why should I use, you know, SushiSwap versus uh, versus Uniswap versus the next AMM? For Trident specifically, who are you building it for? This is the beauty of the Decided MasterChef, which I think is just like a, it's almost like serendipitous the way that it's designed and that we can use it for migration. Uh, we're able to migrate our entire AMM to the new AMM something that our contemporaries don't have that capability. And so we're going to have, we're going to go from our $2 billion in TVL or like, you know, various, whatever, like some two and a half, $3 billion in TVL, something like that, um, that we have now is just going to migrate directly to the new AMM. And so we're going to start out with the same level of prices that we have now, the same amount of rewards, but we're going to have enhanced capabilities. The, the thing to keep in mind is that we kept specific pools like 5050 uh, constant product pools because those are really good for passive LPs and really good for long tail 
coins. I don't think having concentrated liquidity means that we don't have constant product pools. I think that those are still really useful. I think to deny that is a, a bit weird. In terms of like LPs, we're going to go for active LPs and passive LPs. We really just want to have a system that is built on bento box that gives LPs really good yield on their assets underlying as well as really good prices for the end user. I think that's really the driver of volume is all based around prices. Yeah, makes sense. And I understand that you guys are also exploring something else called franchise pools, which are specialized pools designed to cater to the KYC and AML needs for a lot of, you know, institutional players, right, who are wanting to get into DeFi. And we know that trend is is only going to increase. So can you talk about how those pools are structured to fit that need? Yeah, uh, the release of Trident will not include franchise pools from the jump, but like in the very near future after the release, we'll be like, building those out. Part of this is around the ability to whitelist. Many inst- institutions want to have, the well, not want, they absolutely have to have KYC, AML whitelists for who they're interacting with. They can't get around that, period. Um, we've talked to institutions who said that. And the other thing that we found is that they want to bring their own whitelist. They don't trust each other's processes, so they don't want us to federate identity or do KYC AML for them. So what we're going to do is we're going to give them the capability to have a very low gas cost um, list that will allow them to name the actors that they're going to be like interacting with. I think that's going to be really cool. These won't be like main pools in Sushi. They'll kind of be like side and like to the side and not necessarily routed through for most users. They'll probably be specific actors that have been whitelisted that will be arbing this um, franchise pool against the, um, the, the main pools. Great. So moving on to another product on the Sushi platform, it's called Miso, right? Minimal Initial Sushi Offering. We saw Yield Guild deploy their Dutch auction on Miso yesterday. Talk to us about that. Yeah, so I think they raised 12 and a half million, which was fantastic. Um, the Miso platform is this token launching platform that we don't make anything off of. We just do it because it's good for our ecosystem. We uh, spent a lot of time like building out that, that capability. We still have like, many features on the roadmap for Miso. But yeah, this um, auction happened and it was over in like 30 seconds. Um, yeah, it was pretty crazy. The thing, there, there's so many considerations. I know people are upset like, about, about it, but there, there, were, there was a way that it could have went. There was another way that it could have went. They didn't do a batch auction. They could have done a batch auction where it like allows this like open-ended top, like a Dutch auction or a reverse Dutch auction has like an absolute maximum and an absolute minimum of, of range and may fall somewhere in between. A batch auction sets it so that there's like no upper limit, but there is a lower limit. And um, I think they could have done that. Although one, they, they had no way to anticipate demand it's just they're probably asking around. In fact, on Wall Street, there are people who specialize specifically in this for 
the IPOs to gauge demand and, and price what it's going to be. So I can't expect us to be more sophisticated at this point. The other thing to think about is sometimes when people are raising, they raise a specific amount of money for a reason and extra money isn't good for them. Having extra cash on hand for something that they don't need is, is not healthy, even if it seems really great for their valuation. Just having money lying around that you're not going to use isn't always a, a good strategy. So I think that they chose Dutch because they had an absolute upper bound of what they wanted to raise. And I, I know people are upset about that idea, but you know, this is DeFi. We built the MISO platform. They can choose the parameters that they want to put in and how they want to raise. And we don't really want to tell them how to you know, live their life. Yeah, it seems like it's starting off right now with, with a bit of hand-holding with certain projects. And then over time, I guess that entire process will be uh, transferred to the community. Is that the case right now? Yeah, right, right now in the beginning, it's very hands-on. Um, and, and in fact, we still have to roll out features. We want to make sure that the auctions are running smoothly. And so it's very much curated. But over time, it's going to be all hands off. Anybody can launch on the platform. Another thing to think about, like when you start these token launcher platforms, if you started them wide open, they get hit with just a lot of bad um, projects, mm -hmm. a lot of spam that comes through people who are raising and don't really have any like, intention of delivering a product. We wanted to make sure these, they were getting really high quality projects that were coming through initially. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So there are so many other parts of the Sushi platform, um, one of them being Kashi, which is the lending and margin trading tool, and also Shoyu as well. Is there anything specifically on the roadmap that you'd like to talk to us about? Kashi is great. I, I take my Xushi and I use it as collateral and I borrow USDC. Like I'm doing that right now. Um, I, I believe in the long-term growth of sushi and I just don't want to give it up. So um, Kashi has allowed me to kind of borrow from the underlying. Um, this is a, um, uh, gosh, I, <laughs> it's, it's early here, by the way. It's like, they're like early or late, depending on by your standards, but it, it's isolated lending market in that if you think of the way that we have pools for AMMs, it's very similar that we have like, two tokens and the pools isolated and there's a really good reason for that um, if you look at other lending platforms they pool the tokens together as collateral and and borrow and the problem that can occur and the, you, you'll notice that they're ultra conservative about what tokens they add and they are really into like risk profiling those two tokens and the reason is is that if um, they fail to make a liquidation the entire protocol can go into a fractional reserve state, which is where you'll see like some of them take a, like, a, like some sort of like reserve factor as you're depositing um, or some sort of like, you know, insurance, right? Uh, to protect against this fractional, uh, like some probability, not, not zero, but not super high probability of going fractional reserve, but in isolated lending, because it's just a pool that's isolated between the two pair, you're able to give like much better parameters to these. 
So for instance, X Sushi has the 75% LTV, and that's in the X Sushi USDC pool and really good rates. Like right now, it's paying something like for USDC, uh, it's like 0.25% APR. It's amazing. And th those rates are elastic, right? So they go on the basis of utilization of the underlying tokens. It's a very beautiful system. And we built that on Bento Box. So if you are lending on Bento Box, I'm sorry, if you're lending on Kashi, um, the tokens underlying actually go into Bento Boxes. So you're making on a strategy and you're making on your, your lend. Yeah. Nice. And then uh, anything with Shoyu, which is the NFT platform, I hear things are coming down the pike, maybe mid, late August or so. Anything that you can share? Yeah, we have, um, we just, I think we just paid for our audits for Shoyu. Um, it's just going to be a nice NFT platform. I'm not super close to it. This is one of the beautiful things um, about Sushi is I don't necessarily always have to be close to a project. This one in particular was somebody on our core team wanted to build something and they made a proposal to the community <clears throat> and started working on it. And I think it will fit in nicely with our roadmap, but um, I don't necessarily have super deep details um, on, on all I'll show you. The beauty of a decentralized team, right? Everyone can have totally. ownership over yeah. various projects. Uh, I'm sure yours, your side of things is filled already with Trident. Now that's coming out. Great. Well, now I want to move on to talking about something that has dominated crypto Twitter over the past week, week and a half or so. And that's Sushi's private funding round uh, called the Phantom Troop Strategic Raise. Uh, and I was listening to the first episode of the Sushi Forum and learn that broadly speaking, and, and this is something that we've just discussed, uh, the impetus for Sushi's raise is that it's at an inflection point, right? Where uh, it's, it's looking to consolidate a lot of the existing financial primitives that it's already built and to expand a lot of those offerings to a much wider audience. What's interesting here is that it was called, or it is called a strategic raise. And I'm just wondering, you know, what does strategic refer to here? Like, can you clarify the, the pedigree of the various types of firms or funds that Sushi is looking for in this private round? Sure. Um, so I'll, I'll say we, we started, we need to sell some of the treasury to kind of sustain long-term development. Sushi is super liquid not really like we would have a problem even selling it on sushi right if we sold it in small batches over a long enough period but we we do also need people who can help steer sushi governance wise and um, also partners that can bring us some reasonable deal flow and uh, support for sushi team um, and so it's like kind of started on the heels of like trying to solve two problems at once. Um, I, I am not in particular um, for this um, proposal. And that's another beautiful thing about the sushi community is that kind of any person is free to propose, um, um, you know, a, like an idea or um, something on the forum. Um, in this case, it was Maki, and so it comes with a, a bit more weight than if um, a, a, any particular person in the community did it. Um, 
Uh, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. <clears throat> I think it started out very, very much as a, a very one-sided deal where Sushi would have gotten the strategic partners, but at, I think, great cost. Yeah. And so the the community really has been the white blood cells in this sense that they kind of have come and helped to refactor the deal. And it seems to, the controversy has only seemed to uh, embolden the community to like refactor the deal in such a way that makes it appealing for them. We had Phantom Troop call number one had 500 community members on it. Uh, it's just Incredible. crazy. Like, it, an yeah. unbelievable amount of people who care about the future of sushi. Yeah, I mean, do you feel like some of the individuals who propose, you know, certain certain things like Jeff Dorman over at Arca, um, Sam Bankman-Fried from FTX, and Amy Wu from Lightspeed, do you feel like it was necessary to have individuals like these kind of lead the conversation, right, to evolve the initial proposal into something we see now, which is much more favorable to the sushi team, uh, but also is, you know, giving an allocation to the community as well. Like, do, do you feel like these individuals needed to be involved in order for that to happen? Well, I, <clears throat> I think one of the, one of the, as, as we talked to some of these venture firms, right? Because very often we're like the eyes and ears and mouth of, of the community. One of the things that we told them is, you know, you got to post in the forum. You can't just be, you know, this isn't like a regular strategic round that you might be doing. Um, you have to kind of convince the people who are actually going to be making the decision that, that they, they want you involved and um, kind of prove to them uh, that, uh, you know, that they believe that you're competent. I thought that that was, um, uh, uh yeah, sorry. Uh, I'm just getting lost track here. Um, all good, all good. cause I, I'm not super close to this as well. It's like one of those things that's like, I, I know, I knew about, it's like operating in my periphery mm-hmm. and, um, I, I just like think the community's doing a great job of handling it. Um, and I, I want to see like more of that where it's just we have these opportunities and our core team, while it is big now, it's like 22 people, mm-hmm. there's just absolutely no way that we can cover all of the bases that Sushi's covering right now. Right. Yeah, well, let's talk about something that you probably uh, care more about and, and are closer to, and that is both one regulation, but also decentralization, right? One of your contemporaries, uh, Uniswap recently delisted 100 tokens from its interface. It's it's kind of important to know that these changes were made to the front end and not to the protocol. Um, And so those two things are separate, but that this was done because of a lot of regulatory pressure that they, you know, seem to be indicating. So what do you think about this news and does SushiSwap have an advantage because developers are largely anonymous and Uniswap is a US-based entity, whereas SushiSwap is a decentralized project? Yeah, I mean, I think it's easy to, to put down Uniswap for what happened. I, I think at some point, like I have no real like insight into this, but I, I imagine that they made that decision on a basis of pressure. I think we're just a smaller target 
at some point we will probably get that same pressure and so it would be like foolish to say like ah you know like what do you yeah. I, I don't think that I don't think that decentralization is a defense against that we have Americans on the team I'm an American <laughs> like <laughs> um, and when if the feds want you there's nobody's undoxable um, so it could easily happen the one thing that I would be worried about like, and another thing to think about is, is people say, oh, it's just the front end. But, like, really? That's how we access it. You know, it, it's mm. no one No one is going to go to, to Etherscan. No one's going to, like, calculate their own route and go to Etherscan and put that <laughs> in. It means those tokens are dead, right? You can't mm. use those pools mm. um, in reality. And the other thing that I, I worry about is, is, like, regulators come in um, and they're not entirely understanding or... or our products, like, not just ours, but like just DeFi in general, they don't understand the, like the distinct advantages that it has over like this like criminal banking practices. The thing that I worry is that we like have to compromise on our designs. For for me, the end goal is is a free and open source decentralized financial system that allows individuals, like any individual, the same sophisticated financial instruments that were just available to elites at once, right? I'm also always like looking at this from an American perspective, so just keep that in mind. But if you look at the savings rates in America, Americans are so bad with savings. And that's not, that's by design. That's by design. You can't get a, any saving, you can't get any savings interest in, in a bank in America. In fact, it it's so, it's so, it, it's like so inflation let's say that it's three percent it isn't it's higher right everybody knows that but uh, in a bank in america you get like the average uh, savings rate is 0.2 percent 20 basis points that's insane so like you're losing 2.8 percent of your money per year to inflation assuming like a three percent inflation rate like, there aren't savings in america because we have a shitty banking system and poor people and average people don't have access to the financial instruments. There, you'll see changes now and then, like Robinhood, etc., where you'll see the average consumer is um, trading. But you'll see exactly how T plus two settlement, so they say, has kind of screwed these people who actually succeeded in their short squeeze. If I were the SEC. That's what I would be. That's what I would be worried about, and I wouldn't necessarily be worried about be worried about programmatic decentralized exchanges that give every user kind of a fair shot, fair and transparent shot at what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this segues nicely into one of the last points that I want to chat with you about, and that is SushiSwap's decision to be GPL3 compliant, right? And I, I want to talk to you about that decision. You know, did you meet any resistance internally from the SushiSwap team or was it just a unanimous decision? Like this is the way to go. You know, we, we don't want to license any of our code because we do believe in this permissionlessness nature of decentralized finance. Yeah, no, everybody who works at Sushi is really punk rock and they were on board from the jump. I put it as like, we kind of built this list of features and um, uh, design goals for uh, Trident. And 
GPL3U was on the list, and there was absolutely no resistance to that. I think as a community for Ethereum, we've gotten away from this idea. We, we all wouldn't be here if it wasn't for if it wasn't for free and open source software. You know, Linux, Bitcoin Core, you know, Geth, Parity, right? These free and open source softwares that allow us to build on top of. I think it's arrogant to to license um, a smart contract for on on multiple levels. But to say that the the, the your predecessors that that gave away their um, uh, platform as free and open source software to say that your your platform is more important we wouldn't be here if it wasn't for free and open source software sushi wouldn't exist exist if it wasn't for gpl3 and this style of, of business is not something that i find i guess like super pleasing i think your product should speak for itself and I think it's issues our, our product will speak for itself. You can fork it. I I bring on the challenge of anybody to fork the platform and do a better job than the sushi community. Man, they, <laughs> I can just rant, but like that's what fair launches were. Fair launches were a movement that happened out DeFi summer, and this has been largely forgotten, is that venture and founders extract almost 100% of the value from a platform where a community and the user base provide almost 100% of the value for the platform. And this is a rebellion on that. Sushi has done a good job of, you know, democratizing that value. If there is some competition that can do a better job at that, I welcome it. Well, on that note, Joe, thank you so much for waking up early uh, to chat with me for over an hour about all the progress around Sushi, your thoughts on the community, and you know the developments that are kind of intact in the roadmap that we should be looking out for. I know our listeners are going to learn a ton from our conversation today, so really appreciate you so much for hopping on Crypto Unstacked. Thank you, Leslie. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group.